Thank you, Pastor Toby, and it's uh, a delight and an honor to be back still once again at Abundant Life at the invitation of uh, these elders to open the Word of God with you uh, this uh, Saturday afternoon. I'm also pleased my wife Joanne could be here. Joanne, would you stand up just a minute and let me say hello to you. Uh, she uh, flew over with me yesterday from... Uh, Baylor University, and from Waco in order to spend this time with you. This evening, from the Word of God, I want to invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading the last three verses in this passage, a text written by the Apostle Paul in one of the most intimate, personal passages that he ever wrote. It's as if he gave you his uh, password, or to put it another way, the key to his diary. He takes his heart out, puts it on the table, risks being vulnerable, and tells you what it's like to be the Apostle Paul. You have this in the Word of God. I'm going to be reading from Second Corinthians 4. 16, 17, and 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, provided that we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, But the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. (laughs) Let me proclaim to you this afternoon a few things about the inside of the outside. If you were to go to the border of France and Switzerland, you would find there one of the amazing excavation projects ever attempted by humans. It's a a tunnel that is 30 miles in diameter. That tunnel was built for the purposes of discovering one of the mysteries of energy. It cost billions of dollars, decades to conceive and to build, all to smash together subatomic particles to try to find one of the unknown basic building blocks of energy. There's something compelling about the source and nature of energy. That's the macrocosm, the big thing. (laughs) 
you can also move to the experience that some of us have with the little thing. Uh, most days I teach preaching at Baylor University, and many of them I get in a car and drive to speak somewhere at uh, night. Well, back I had taught all day, drove a hundred miles, and by the time I got to my destination, I needed some more energy. I did something that I've never done before, and I will never do it again. I brought a can of that stuff, Red Bull. <laughs> I have one experience with Red Bull. By the time I got in the pulpit, I was bouncing off the walls. I think I preached at 300 words a minute. The macrocosm and the microcosm. Energy. Strength. Renewal. It's a piece of life, and it was a piece of the Apostle Paul's life when he wrote this passage. In the very first verse of chapter 4, in the context, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He takes it up again in our text. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Time had uh, taken its toll on the Apostle Paul. And by this time, he is needing more energy in ministry so that he does not lose heart. And he gives you secret to the way that he found that energy by talking about the inside of the outside. Verse 16 puts before you a parallel paradox process, an enigma, a mystery. The apostle says on the one hand, his outer person is in the process of perishing. That is to say, everything about him that can go downhill is going downhill. But on the other side, the inner person of him is in the process of being renewed. And it is a parallel paradox process. These two things are happening inside of him at the same time, parallel. They're happening continuously, habitually, and it is a paradox. First of all, he looks at his outer person. It's an interesting word in the language of the New Testament. It comes into the English language when we speak of those creations that are exoskeletal creatures, crustaceans, those that wear their skeleton on the outside. That's the very word that he uses here. My outer person is in the process of perishing. Paul is 22 years after the Damascus Road conversion experience now. When he writes this book, he's on his third missionary journey. He reminds us in chapter 11 that he had been whipped five times already with Jewish whips, 39 stripes, beaten three times with rods by the Romans from the top of his head to the tip of his toe. He'd been in three shipwrecks, and that doesn't mean falling off a carnival cruise ship. It meant falling out of a little wooden boat and floating in the Mediterranean with no coast guard to rescue him 
one time a day and a night. He's founded churches. Some of them he's had difficulties with, and it's taken a toll on him. He knows that his eye is dimming. His hearing is not as acute as it was. His step was not as fast as it was. In fact, even his emotions aren't flaming up like they did years before when he and Barnabas had a fight about John Mark. All of this is happening to him. And he says, my outer person is in the process of <laughs> perishing. You know, it's interesting. We know more about that actually than Paul knew. Paul knew it was happening, but today, because of biochemistry, we know why it's happening. It's because of free radicals. <laughs> Those uh, electron terrorists that get loose in us and go crazy. The same thing that makes cars rust in the junkyard or pages of books turn yellow in the library, or vegetables go bad in your refrigerator, the same thing sooner or later going to get you too. And you can't eat enough broccoli <laughs> or drink enough pomegranate juice to stop them. You may slow them down, but <laughs> they're going to get you. We know more about how it happens, but yet in a real sense, we live in denial about it. In a way that Paul's generation didn't. Now, I think we don't all look as good as we, we can look. But, you know, in the last ten years, the amount of money spent on cosmetic surgery in the United States has quintupled. Five times more. The most common injection in a doctor's office is an injection of uh, Botox. Take this uh, wrinkle out. Now, once again, nobody's... Uh, for looking bad, I remember early in the life and ministry of Reverend Dr. Billy Graham, who's now in his mid-90s, when he started, he wasn't quite as smooth or diplomatic as he became later. In one of his earliest crusades, a, a woman of Pentecostal persuasion came up to him and accosted him in a hotel lobby after he had preached his crusade and said, I want to know what you think about makeup. And he looked at her and said, ma'am, I think some would do you a lot of good. Uh, he misunderstood the uh, <laughs> misunderstood the question. <laughs> the ultimate pushback against that is the pseudoscience of cryogenics or cryonics, and that is, <laughs> uh, if you want to pay enough, uh, once you die, they'll freeze you. Over against the possibility that someday they may be able to find a way to bring you back. It's what they did to the great uh, Boston Red Slug, Slugger, uh, Ted Williams. They froze Ted in case someday they're able to find a way to crochet his cells back together and bring him back. You see, the truth is, church, in a way, our generation of contemporary secularists has turned what Paul said upside down. Even though we're looking better and better on the outside. A lot of us are walking around dead on the inside. Whereas Paul said in his experience of the power of the risen Christ, <laughs> while I'm going downhill outside, I'm in the process of being renewed on the inside. See, here's the Christian plus. The secular, unbelieving, pagan world around us 
only has one experience, and that is ultimately decline. But when you know the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the age to come, while everything that can go downhill is going downhill, Paul says, my inner person is in the process of being made new day by day. It's a parallel, paradoxical (laughs) process. Here's the apostle. How do you explain the fact that he could be stoned in Turkey at the city of Lystra and yet wake up the next day 30 miles away preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's because he experienced an inner renewal. Another way he puts it in one of his letters to another group of churches in northern Turkey, the Galatian letter, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live, yet not I. There was a place in the apostle that was the corner of I Boulevard and not I Avenue. (laughs) And it was a mysterious place. He said, on the one part, I feel like I'm being put to death, beaten, locked up, jailed, slandered, libeled, the care of the churches. It's killing me. But he said, on the other hand, I feel in me the power that can be explained only by the resurrected Christ. And that's why he could say, even though our outer person is in the process of perishing, our inner person is in the process of being renewed. He put it another way in the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he said, If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. And what he meant by that is that every day and every day, and the word from the New Testament language doesn't mean you're refurbished. It's not just a restoration job. It literally means to be made as good as new. I like to read the stories of people who've experienced that. It appears everywhere in the biography of believers. (laughs) One of the greatest stories in American missionary history was the story of uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you would know it. It That young man who actually is uh, from California, went to Wheaton, then went to the mission field, to the AUKUS, Thought he was making some headway, he and his pilot, Nate Saint, when <laughs> they were surprised by ten orcas with poison spears and murdered that January 8th down on a sandy river bank in Ecuador. Left a widow, Elizabeth, and a baby, Valerie. Do you know what Elizabeth did? <laughs> she went right back down there. And lived sleeping in a hammock with her baby beside her. With orcas waking her up every morning, staring her in the face. Because they weren't used to seeing anybody like her. And because of her witness, most of that entire tribe came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how do you lose a husband to people who shoot poison spears at him and turn around and go back and win them to Jesus? Because even though outwardly life seems to be coming apart inwardly, you're renewed with strength in the inner person. I was preaching in South Chicago a while back, and they took me to a great family home for a a wonderful dinner. Oh, it was a good dinner. It was a dinner of soul food. I loved it. 
pork chops, uh, sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese. That makes me want to go eat right now. Uh, <laughs> collard greens. Oh, it was good. It's interesting, after dinner, we sat down in the living room with five generations of that family. The matriarch had just left Mississippi because of a hurricane where she had lived. She was 100 years old. And the generations of the family were there. There were some 80-year-olds, some 60-year-olds, some 40, right on down to 20-year-olds. And they were in there talking. And something struck me that the most energized, vital, hopeful person in that room was the 100-year-old. Quite frankly, some of the 20-year-olds just looked kind of tired. She was full of plans for tomorrow. Optimism about the rest of her life. Not sad, but thrilled at the future that she had, having left the home where she'd been for a hundred years in Mississippi, starting over in Chicago. And you know what I saw that day? I saw the truth of 2 Corinthians 4.16. Even though an outer person is in the process of perishing, an inner person was as good as new. Now here's where I wish I could go to your kitchen and sit down at the kitchen table across from you with a cup of coffee and look you in the eye. <laughs> I got an honest friend who asked me from time to time, uh, Gregory, how's it going for you? <laughs> I wish I knew you well enough to sit down at that kitchen table and Say, look, how's it going for you, outer versus inner? A lot of us can put on a good show of things outwardly, but really, uh, inwardly, falling apart. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that regardless of what is happening on the outside, you can be renewed on the inside. That's the very heart of the Christian message. In fact, lean with me another way into this text. Because verse 17 is just an expansion of verse 16 when he says all of this is true because glory is heavier than tribulation. Take a look at the text again. Another mystery, our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working out for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Why can I live with the confidence that even though everything about me on the outside is going downhill, everything inside can be renewed because glory weighs more than tribulation. In fact, the Apostle Paul's evidence of that. It's, I, was, uh, I was visiting a while back and, uh, that... Uh, Beautiful Russian city of St. Petersburg. Some Russian guide was taking me around. And we looked at the music conservatory where uh, the most famous 20th century Russian composer worked and taught, uh, Dmitry Shostakovich. And the guide told an interesting story about how he wrote his most beautiful symphony, the Seventh Symphony. So 1941, the Germans were bombing what was then uh, Leningrad. Shostakovich wanted to join the Russian army, go out and fight, but he was a national treasure. It had been kind of like sending Mozart to the front. So they talked him into joining the Home Guard and said, Look, when the bombs fall here in Leningrad, you help put out the fires. That's what he did. 
on top the music conservatory. When a bomb would fall, he'd throw some water on the fires and then run back to his piano and compose some more of his seventh symphony. When another bomb would fall, he'd throw some water on it, go back. His life was lived between the fire and the music. I wonder if Paul didn't feel that way. One day preaching the gospel with power, another day in jail. One day seeing someone like the traveling Gentile businesswoman Lydia down by the riverside at Philippi, bringing her to Christ, and the next day being thrown bodily out of a synagogue. His life was lived between the music and the fire. That's why he writes this verse to you and to me, looking out at us across the ages. He says, Waven, on the one hand is tribulation, and on the other hand is glory. And he flips the script from the way we usually look at it. He says, tribulation, why that's light, and it's for a moment. Glory, that's heavy, and it lasts forever. What he's imagining is a old-fashioned pan balance where you have two pans suspended from a beam. He says, put tribulation on one side and put glory on the other. And he says, if you'll look at it from the power of Christ, <laughs> glory so far outweighs tribulation that it will break the balance beam. Now, that's just the opposite of the way we look at it. He says tribulation is light and momentary. What do we usually say about troubles? We don't say they're light. We say what? This is getting me what? Down. Or we say, it seems like this is going to go on forever. Y'all could come up here and preach this, I think. <laughs> but glory, glory to us looks transient and ethereal and momentary, kind of like a strobe light going off. Paul says you, got, you need a checkup from the neck up. He says if you understand it the way we apostles understand it, any tribulation you have is light and belongs to a moment compared to the eternal glory to come. You say, Paul, have you lost your mind? Haven't you read your own book? Paul, you need to go back and read Acts. <laughs> Look what happened to you. <laughs> Five times lacerated with 39 stripes with a whip by the Jews. Didn't you read your own book in chapter 11 of this book? Beaten with rods. And yet Paul says, <laughs> light, momentary tribulation. The care of the churches, slandered, libeled, misunderstood, misrepresented. That light. Momentary tribulation. The reason Paul was able to keep on in ministry and the reason he did not lose heart is because he had that perspective right. That anything that happened to him in comparison to the glory to come is light and momentary, but glory is heavy and lasts forever. Now here's the mystery that I don't know. It's just a mystery. I can just put it out here for you. He says... The tribulation is working out the glory. They're not disconnected. In a way we can't even understand, 
whatever is happening to us by way of affliction now is working out glory then. It's a strange chemistry. I, I, maybe it's like this. Here's, here, here's a grand piano here. Because like most of them, it has 230 strings. You know, big bass strings that are single strings, treble strings, and triple strings. <laughs> 230 strings. You know that those strings are tense on the metal harp inside of that piano. In fact, there's 30 tons of tension as those strings are stretched on the harp in that piano. Do you know that if the harp, the metal part in that piano were to break, the thing would blow through this ceiling? It would. Like a bomb. 30 tons of tension. But guess what? It takes the tension to make the music. If there were no stress, there'd only be a dull thud when the hammer hits that string. And this is the mystery of the Christian life. If you're considering Jesus or Christianity or being part of this community, let me tell you something. It's not a free pass from trouble. Let me put that right up here. There's so much prosperity, health, wealth, preaching that the Christian message is being misrepresented. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I don't want to paper over that. But he promises something better than that. Yes, there'll be tension. But it takes that tension to bring out the music. And that's the Christian life. Christian life is recognizing, yes, there's tribulation, but it's light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. Do you understand what the New Testament says about your destiny if you know Jesus? It says in 1 John, when you see Him, you'll be made like Him because you'll see Him as He is. That's an amazing statement. When you see him, you'll be made like him. Because you'll see him. Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, the famous preacher and winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, says, you understand what that means? If, 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 if somebody just got to heaven and looking around and saying they were looking at you and looking at Jesus, they might ask, which one's Jesus? That's what he says. In all reverence, you'll see him, you'll be like him. That's the weight of glory. You say, well, Joel, how do you know that? Glad you asked. Verse 18, and I'm going to sit down. One of these pours into the other. All of this is provided that you fix your gaze not on what you can see, but on what you cannot see. Because if you can see it, it's momentary. It's transient. But if you can't see it, it lasts forever. Now, here's an oxymoron. You know what oxymoron is? Like high lowness, near farness. It's contradictory. Look at what you can't see. The word that he uses gives us the word scope, like telescope, microscope, stethoscope. It means to look at something with acuity, to appraise it. And Paul says, fix your appraisal on things that you can't see, because that's what lasts. But if you rivet your glance on what you can see, 
That's not going to last. Hmm. You know, church, we don't even have to guess about that. We can put it in the laboratory of history. Just go back to Paul when he came to this city of Corinth. Corinth is world famous only because Paul visited there. (laughs) It had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar a hundred years before he came there. But Paul's coming to Corinth wasn't a high moment, it was a low moment in his life. He'd been laughed out of Athens. He tried to preach to the city council and the Supreme Court on the Mars Hill, and they were with him until he preached about Jesus and the resurrection, and they laughed him out of town. Now, you might say, I don't mind being laughed out of town, but you probably lie about other stuff too. (laughs) Nobody healthy that I know of likes to be laughed out of town. He was laughed out of Athens. You can read it. Acts 17. So all alone, he walks down to Corinth. His friends, Timothy and others, are up dealing with some church, something. He's alone. And when he comes to Corinth, he sees the visible power of the Roman world. Corinth was on a narrow neck of land, the Isthmus of Corinth. He could see the Roman navy on the east and the west side of it. Ships docked there. Triremes with three rows of oars, sails unfurled, power of the Roman. He saw it. must have intimidated him after being laughed out of Athens. There was the marketplace, a great emporium, ancient equivalent of a contemporary mall. (laughs) Spices from the east, carpets from Persia, dates from Libya, all kind of stuff there to be seen. He could see it. (laughs) Up on... A mountain was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual love. And every night it is said that hundreds of temple prostitutes came down in a torchlight parade to sell themselves to the sailors. He he could see that torchlight parade. must have intimidated him. And (laughs) here was the temple of Apollo. Beautiful building. Gold-covered columns gleaming in the sun. He could see that. And yet, Paul said, if you can see it, it's not going to last. Fast forward to 2014. (laughs) Gone is the temple of Aphrodite. Long gone. Gone the Roman navy and the Roman empire. Gone (laughs) the great mall of Corinth. In fact, Corinth is gone. Except for one thing, every day, dozens and dozens of buses show up filled with Christians with their Bible open to Acts 18 to read about the time Paul was there. Do you get my point? (laughs) He said it. If you can see it, it's gone. If you live for what you can't see. It's going to last. I've watched believers walk those streets with tears in their eyes, their Bible open, because that little Jewish itinerant evangelist witnessed and preached there. All the rest of it is gone. (laughs) Paul says, fix your gaze on what you cannot see. Only that is going to last. 
And see, that's the strange thing about life right around here, just like anywhere. Here are two, uh, two men, two women, two guys. They live on the same street in the same subdivision. <laughs> yeah, maybe next door. One of them gets up every morning, reads the paper, drinks coffee, has breakfast, goes to work, maybe at the same place as his next-door neighbor. Drives the same kind of car, lives in the same kind of house. Comes home, watches the news, says the world's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Falls asleep in a chair, goes to bed, get up the next day. The only world that person lives in is <laughs> what he sees. But right next door, is somebody who lives a very different life. Wakes up in the morning, and the first conscious thought that person has is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wakes up in the morning and opens the Word of God, or Oswald Chambers, or C.H. Spurgeon, or somebody. Enters into a world that his neighbor doesn't even know exists. All day long, the person lives with a sense of an invisible somebody there. More real than any other. His neighbor probably makes fun of him and says, Oh, him, he acts like he has a secret pal named Jesus. And at night when that man goes to bed, when that lady falls asleep, the last conscious thought is, Lord, watch over me tonight. Greet me in the morning. Living side by side in two different worlds. Now that little cameo I gave you right now is not hard for you to answer. Which world do you live in? I don't want to just make a pretty little speech here. I'd like to ask a question. <laughs> Which world do you live in? Do you live in a world that is saturated with the person of Jesus Christ? Someone whom having never seen, you love him. Or... <laughs> Are you just living for what you see? Grumbling and saying the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And you don't have any hope either. i got good news. The good news of the gospel is that you can meet the risen, ascended Jesus Christ. And you can feel the powers of the age to come pulling you toward it. And even while the inevitable decline takes place, and it is, and once again, I'm not against looking good, dying, working out all that, and that's good. But you understand, that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> Ultimately, barring his coming, nothing. Paul put it this way, this same apostle, so clearly. He said, if you'll confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. You haven't seen him, but you confess it. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be rescued. And you'll feel the power of inner renewal. I wonder if there's one somebody this evening who'd say, yeah, you know, Joel, it's interesting you'd come by here. I wasn't expecting this message, but maybe there's just an appointment between you and me and the Lord this evening. Somebody here needs to say, oh, oh, oh. when you talk about empty on the inside, that's I. <laughs> In a moment, there's going to be some friends down here. You may not even know what to call it or how to say it, but 
I'll tell you this, they can introduce you to the one who can give you inner renewal. Or maybe there are just some folks here that are discouraged. My Lord, that's what Paul's writing about. He says, here's why we're not discouraged. Life takes a toll, ministry in the church can <laughs> empty you. Maybe you just need to come and take that again and say, Lord, here I am, spent, empty, and tired. That's what Isaiah was talking about when he said in the 40th chapter, they that wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. You know, that's a wonderful thing. He said that they'll, they'll walk and they'll not what? Grow weary. They'll run and they'll not what? Faint. And some can mount up with wings as eagles. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't make walkers fly, but he doesn't tie eagles to the ground. And wherever you are in that picture, maybe you just need to come to this altar and say, God, I need to take my weariness, even in serving you, and exchange it for the great strength that you have. That's why we invite people to stand up and step out. <laughs> when Jesus walked up to people, he didn't give them a lot of theology, mysterious terms. He only said two words, follow me. Now, let me give you a word in followology. <laughs> it means to put one foot <laughs> in front of the other and stay as close to him as you can. Let's bow together just a moment. All over this sanctuary, some in the balcony above, the transepts on the side, wherever you are. I don't think it's an accident that you're here or that I came by here from Texas. Somebody tonight needs to bring your spentness, emptiness, weariness, the void that is inside of you. And trust that the same one who gave that great apostle strength to go down the road to the next place and strength to go all the way until he could say at the end in Second Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. I finished, of course. It's laid up for me a crown that is life. Wouldn't you like to know that? Wouldn't you like to know that? Father, I pray that now you'll speak to these who are bowed in prayer. You, you know them. And Lord, I, I'm asking that tonight in this place that someone would not be more concerned about dignity than they are about deliverance. That someone would say, I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God that He will lift me up and will step out from a seat somewhere fix their gaze on what they cannot see and never ever look away from that in the power of the name of Jesus I ask it amen if you look this way the ministry of the church is